Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Strength in the Numbers. Now are you one of those 9 out of 10 accountants who people try and avoid at dinner parties? Because this is just one way of looking at a recent survey result that's quite damning about our ability to communicate as accountants and finance professionals with the broader public. And it's something today's guest mentor, Rhonda Lynn Corlack, and I deconstruct a number of steps around so we can improve our communication styles to better build leverage and then go on to better create value and capture value for our clients and organizations. We also discuss why financial illiteracy uh, is a big problem for SMEs and us as accountants and how we're not making things simple enough for people to understand the numbers and a huge dilemma we face in this, but also why it's such a great opportunity as well going forward. And something that's really close to my heart is actually reframing the conversation around value. In fact, actually pricing value as opposed to value-based pricing. We go through the difference and also the importance of this and how we can leverage it to advantages of our clients and ourselves. So this is a really brief introduction today because this is a longer than usual episode, but there's a lot in here. So let's get to it as soon as possible. Uh, before we do, if you do enjoy it, let your friends and colleagues know about it. They can subscribe at all the major platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud and YouTube. And yes, thanks for investing your time with us today. Really appreciate it. So without further ado, over to Rondalyn and the show. I went into accounting because I scored, you know, in the 96th percentile or something crazy like that for my math exam, for my state math exam. And so, you know, I was really, really good with numbers. And I actually started off my career for one semester in engineering, but then I realized that I wasn't really inclined towards physics and, you know, moments of inertia and all that, that kind of aspect of the engineering profession. But I still knew I was good at math. So that's kind of how I happened my way into accounting, right? And, you know, I'm good with numbers, but I never really fit in. I mean, I spent the first number of years of my profession. I did um, I did my degrees first, and then I article to become a lawyer. And then I actually went back to article to become an accountant. So I did it kind of the opposite way that most people would do it. Most people would become a chartered accountant first. And then they might go to law school and become a lawyer. I did sort of the opposite. And as I was doing it, um, you know, I was working for PricewaterhouseCoopers, you know, big four firm was big six at the time, but now big four. And I knew that I didn't really fit in, you know, just because I was good at with numbers didn't mean that I had a natural inclination to do that job. I was more interested in the people. I was more interested in, you know, relationships and visiting and networking and all that stuff that had kind of nothing to do with the traditional job of an accountant. You know, 
I still remember, and this is kind of funny because this is old PwC and people that had worked there will laugh. We used to have these big old high back chairs that kind of really like old English style, which was, you know, a bit funny for a place like Calgary, Alberta, Canada, have this really like old English decorating of a, of a modern work area. But we had this, you know, old English kind of big high back chairs and very high brow. And I would walk into all the partners and other people's offices and there would just be piles of paperwork, like literally from the floor, you know, almost a meter high piles of files, client files and paperwork. And in my office, I had like a bonsai tree and <laughs> throw cushions on my leather chairs. And, you know, people would sometimes come in when I wasn't there or I was out of the clients and read the newspaper and eat their lunch in my office because it was like a totally different environment. And so I should have known right from the get-go that I probably didn't fit in, right? Yeah, but but I suppose, you know, it's, it's probably making do of that that qualification as well, right? So, you know, you, you've, you've done that in training, invest in that time. So, like, what was your next move from there? I mean, how did you leverage that to your advantage? I pretty much decided that I wanted to... Um, come over and have an opportunity to maybe find work in in Australia. And when I first came, um, there is something called a 457 visa here, I was able to get one, but I couldn't really get one to practice law because law wasn't on the list of professions that they were currently seeking at the time. And it was going to be a little bit tricky if I wanted to go back into accounting because I was trained as a oil and gas tax lawyer. And so I would have had to pretty much re-article to become a chartered accountant again in Australia to learn all of the new, you know, I'd have to learn a completely new tax code and everything from scratch to practice. And I just didn't really want to do that because I didn't really have time to do that. I didn't want to start at the bottom again and start working my way up. So I just went into general management and I became a general manager for the village cinemas, which is the largest, um, movie screening company in the you know in the country and then i became a senior commercial director for the largest coalition loyalty program at the biggest retailer so the biggest retailer here um, was cole's group and their flybys program and they basically had about 22 different brands so there was a bank there was target kmart office works like most of the biggest brands in the country were part of this retail group and part of this loyalty program and so after i became a permanent resident and a citizen of australia i left that position and i went into business coaching and pretty much that's where i have been ever since it's kind of where i learned some really fascinating stuff because i remember i told you at the beginning of all this i was an oil and gas tax lawyer i had zero experience with small business you know, I didn't really work with a lot of small businesses and I didn't really understand them. So when I went into this, you know, business coaching type of role, I thought that I could just take all of the dashboards because you have to also remember that this was before the cloud. So this is before there were, you know, zero and cloud accounting apps and all of that sort of stuff. And I would take all these spreadsheets and KPIs and dashboards and all the stuff out to my clients and I would coach them. And I could not figure out for the life of me why they didn't understand any of it. <laughs> like I thought, well, surely if you're running a business, you're going to take some time to actually learn something about finance because 
You need to know that to run your business successfully. But I was wrong. I discovered that pretty much, and I think this is pretty fair, about 95% of small business owners are financially illiterate. Now, that's a huge problem for us, right, as accountants and finance professionals, and, and I'm going to tell you why. We've got a huge block of clients for those of us that deal with small business clients that are financially illiterate, and they also, for the most part, about 87 or 90 percent of those also have severe cash flow and working capital problems because they're not able to qualify and they can't get loans traditionally from banks. Either the banks aren't lending to them or they don't qualify. You know, the banks really want to do residential mortgages. They don't want to do business lending. So we've got all these business owners who are financially illiterate. They're crying out for cash to survive, let alone thrive and grow. And we've got a whole bunch of accountants like me who went to school and were taught accrual accounting, which obfuscates financial performance, right? We're, we were not in the business of making it simple for people. And that is a huge dilemma and a huge opportunity for us because I believe that the biggest opportunity doesn't lie in any of this technology, the apps, any of the stuff that we've got. I believe it, it, it lies in us unlocking within ourselves better communication styles that actually speak to a lay person and learning what we need to gain leverage on our clients and to influence them to take action. And I think that is the future of our, prof our profession. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the next step we need to take, Rhonda Lynn, for us to remain relevant, 100%. We have good tra technical training that we've picked up historically where we've developed all the ratios, the, the different types of accounting. Now we've got software in theory, should that, that should be doing a lot of that, um, enabling us now to be spending more time on influencing. But, you know, I, I, have, I have to say from my own experiences uh, and talking to the, you know, more newly trained professionals in accounting and finance, we're not necessarily spending enough time on this, um, this influencing and improving our communication styles. Do you, do you have any sense why that is? I think it's because we're not that way inclined. And I think a lot of the profession associate that with selling and selling is a dirty word to an accountant, right? So we don't have a sales program. You know, we don't have a sales problem, Andrew. We've got an influence problem and they're, they're very different, right? We don't have to sell our clients anything. They're bleeding profusely, right? Cash flow is the lifeblood of their business. They're bleeding profusely. And we actually have some really important skills to pinpoint, quantify, and help them fix that pain, but we don't do it. And we need, and we need to, right? We need to figure out how do we gain leverage on them and how do we influence them to take action? Because my, you know, my definition of advisory is probably a little bit different than some people's. I believe that if you're still doing the work, it ain't advisory. It's still compliance. We've got to get the clients to take accountability and step up and do stuff in their own business. And to me, that's the real advisory. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, and it's scalable because because once once you've got one client doing it, I'm not saying all clients are the same. It allows you to then go and see if there's similar opportunities in other clients. And 
allows you to build your profile. When you use the word selling, right, this is this is one that gets me, and it's one of those eureka moments of people. It's, um, you know, if you do a good bit of work for a client or a partner or a stakeholder in an organization even, how many of us accountants are asking for a testimonial or a referral to see if they know anyone else who would benefit from our, our skills similarly? Hmm. Um, we never take those opportunities. That's just good fundamental business. 101. It's the cheapest way of being able to get new clients but and that's also the, that's the uh, funny thing, right? I'm going to tell you a funny story and you're going to love it. Yeah, go on. <laughs> I, I used to be the national speaker for MYOB, which was before cloud accounting. It was pretty much the main accounting package that was used in Australia. And we were touring. I had just written my second book, Financial Foreplay. So you can probably get a, you know, a little bit of a vibe for um, the theme and how I write these books. You know, my second book was called Financial Foreplay. And I went on this huge speaking tour with them back in 2010. And in one month, I presented to like 5,000 accountants and small business owners in a month. And while we were doing the tour and I was doing, you know, talking about cash flow and helping businesses, they did some surveys. And one of the survey questions that they asked them is, if we, MYOB, did one thing to help you with your business and that one thing made all the difference in the world and it fixed your number one problem, what do you need help with? What, what could we do that would help you the most? Do you want to take a guess at what 96% of the survey recipients said? I need, I need, more, I need more customers. So <laughs> they think the average SME out there who's financially literate has it in their head that they need more customers to fix their cash flow. And they don't know that that is technically incorrect. And furthermore, Let's just say that they're right and they actually do need more customers. Do you think that they're going to go to their accountant as their first person to get help on how to get uh, sales and marketing advice? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yep. That's no, it. <laughs> you can see the comedy. This is like Shakespeare couldn't even write stuff uh, this funny, right? I no, I don't. I look, you're, 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 you're hitting the nail on the head. Rondolin, like, like you just, as you were saying that, and I'm sure it's for some of our listeners as well. I had this story playing in my mind of a, of a, a client I went into. So I, my background's in enterprise level finance and, and you go in, apply a few ratios. We've been trained to do, all been trained to do it. And it turned out that there was actually 1.4 million euro of working capital just sitting there unleveraged. And they had a loan with the bank for a million euro that they're paying 9% interest on. So like... <laughs> It was a no-brainer, and and this this company had a CFO as well. Um, that they used to be their bookkeeper. So you know, so like we should never assume that that um, you know these businesses can't benefit from our help. And this is just our basic uh, training. Uh, but uh, but the reason why I ended up in there is because I was looking at their accounts. I I was curious enough that bi- that business, and I brought with them a solution when I when I, I came in. But you know, it took time to develop communication, um, influence, uh, trust along the way. And I suppose, Rondalyn, what would really benefit our listeners, I believe, is have you got some sort of practical steps uh, we can follow to I suppose improve our communication styles and get that leverage. Oh, look, tons. The very first thing that we have to do is stop selling KPIs and dashboards. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Anybody who thinks that getting into advisory means that they can just whip out some KPIs and dashboards and use an app is kidding themselves because that stuff doesn't mean anything 
to the client. Uh, you know, and I've never so I'm coming at this purely from a small business, not an enterprise level perspective. Okay, so I'll be clear about that. Maybe it's different if you're dealing with people that are highly educated and have a high degree of mm -hmm. financial acumen. But let's just presume for a moment that we're only talking about small business advisors. Job number one is we have to stop thinking that we can just whip that dashboard out and solve their pain. The second thing that we have to think about is we have to get better at helping to quantify the cost of the client continuing to ignore the problem. You know, how you get leverage on someone isn't to tell them it takes you 92 days to collect your debts. That doesn't work. Because it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it, how long is a piece of string? It doesn't mean anything tangible. You know, I discovered this. I was out coaching this, you know, um, quite successful electrical contracting firm here in Melbourne. They had 187 or 89 full-time electricians and they were building new homes. So this was not a small business, right? And when I first went out and started coaching them, you know, at the very, very beginning of my career, they were carrying $2 million of um, receivables every month at 92 days to collect. And I kept telling them they had to collect the debt. You know, this is really serious. 92 days. I had graphs. I had all the whole rigmarole, right? But it wasn't until I went away and thought about it and came back with a simple calculation. And I said, hey, boys, explain something to me. You guys both have mortgages on your homes. Yes, they all both nodded. And I noticed that you guys both bought boats this year. Yep, they both nodded. And you have young families, you know, kids that are in school. Yep, they both nodded. I said, do you realize that if you just took action and worked with me for the next 60 to 90 days to clean up this receivables mess, that you would actually stop wasting, flushing down the toilet, $234,000 worth of money? And <laughs> I, I had their attention, right? Because everything else I set up until that point didn't mean anything, but they understood wasting $234,000. And how I calculated was that is I just went back and I said, okay, if you are carrying, you know, what's the cost of all these debt factoring facilities that you've got going? What happens when you don't pay your credit cards on time? How much interest are you paying on that? And I just started adding everything up. You know, how much does it cost? to have the receivables person chasing all this debt, emails, faxes, you know, going back into files and rehashing stuff. And I just total it all up and I got their attention. So one of the things I'm passionate about is teaching accountants how to quantify the cost of doing nothing. That's how you get leverage. And we have to remember, um, so in addition to doing law and accounting, I spent some time learning about how the brain works. So, you know, I became a clinical hypnotherapist. I studied neuroscience. I, you're trying to delve deep into understanding how our brain works. And I was really, really shocked to discover that the part of the brain that decides can't read numbers or words. Oh. Now, I just want you to think about that for a moment, because if the part of your brain, it's the oldest part of your brain, is survival based and instinct driven and it cannot read numbers or words what business do you or i have trying to sell a dashboard we need to we need to be in the business of storytelling we need to be in the business of creating 
really compelling visual pictures. And by that, I don't mean graphs. I mean, teaching people like when I'm working with accountants, I did this in financial foreplay, I do it in my app. So I created an app called business. And what that app does is it strips out all the accounting. So yes, we've got dashboards, we've got cash flow forecasts. But more importantly, we teach in pictures and videos and words and stories, how to fix the business. And that's what we need to do as a profession. I believe that that is the future of our profession. And it has nothing to do with technical skills or financial skills or, you know, financial modeling. I get frustrated when I see people going on and on and on and LinkedIn and everywhere else about financial modeling because our modeling is already too complex for the part of the brain that decides. It can't read that stuff. We, we don't need like most of the, you know, most of the problems that I see small businesses suffering from, they're not that complex. They're simple little rookie mistakes that these people are making. And it is actually very easy to strip away all the accounting and help them to just fix their business. We don't, you know, I always like to think this, you don't have to be a hairdresser in order to be the accountant of a hairdresser. And that hairdresser doesn't need to learn accounting to run a successful business either. But we just have to get better at explaining to them, you know, why their business doesn't have any money. Uh, you know, I just, I'm just wondering if it's just us getting out of our way a little bit, you know, <laughs> probably. <Yep. laughs> Wasn't it Einstein that once said, if you can't explain what you do to a six-year-old then you won't really <laughs> understand it enough well enough yet that's right, like? that's that's that is it that is exactly you that is that is perfect that's perfect way of looking at this Rondalyn. that's that's fantastic and look I, I can tell you're very passionate about about this but i suppose what what's exciting you most about your current work oh look i guess there's so many aspects of it that excite me and part of it is just this whole moving away from compliance to advisory but another aspect of it is I guess you know you're familiar that I'm writing a book on value pricing or value-based pricing and I'm really really passionate about that because I think at the end of the day one of the biggest struggles I see is so many accountants and bookkeepers lamenting of how they need more customers and that is the craziest thing I've ever heard of because they shouldn't want more customers who don't value them it's nonsensical. It's like putting the cart before the horse. There's no point marketing or selling your services or putting things out on social media to attract more clients that are going to expect a discount or not pay for things and, you know, have a terrible relationship with you. We have to actually fix ourselves first, right? We have to get our heads screwed on straight, figure out what we're really worth and figure out how we can increase that value in the eyes of our clients. And then we need to price that. And then from there, we'll, you know, go out and get more work. I mean, you said it before, or we were talking about this before. Accountants and, and businesses have this idea that, you know, they need more customers. Truth be told, if as an accounting firm, if you are charging a fixed fee or an hourly rate, you're probably already leaving 30% on the table. By just, by just switching to value pricing on your existing clients, I guarantee 
that you can probably lift your sales by 30%. That is a lot of money because that will flow through to the bottom line because by and large, the, num the amount of work that you've got to do to deliver that engagement is probably not that much more. That I, I, I get those numbers and I have to say, uh, thanks for giving me a sneak peek of your book. Brandolin, <laughs> I found it very useful. So I, I, I know probably how this is, um, how this manifests. But, but how, for our listeners, how does that work in practice? Um, get going and getting that thirty percent. Well, look, the biggest thing is, is that first of all, you're going to have to start to learn how to control your own fear. You know, the the biggest reason that you don't make more money than you do right now is because on some level, there is something holding you back. There has to be. Because if there weren't, you would already be there. Right? You'd, you'd already be charging more and making more and doing more if you didn't have fear on some level. So the first thing is try to identify what what is the fear? What is holding you back? Is it fear of losing clients? Is it fear that you're not worth it? Is it a confidence issue that you can't deliver? Whatever it is, it's about figuring out what is it and tackling that head on. And tackling it head on takes time. You know, these things, you know, we've learned over decades, probably for most of us that have been in practice a long time, we've learned to, you know, not fully charge what we're worth. We've learned to let people get away with discounting our stuff or doing things for free. My favorite is when the accountants tell me, oh, I had to do that job for free because the client wouldn't pay for it. And I'm thinking, if the client's not going to pay for it, why the hell are you doing it? Right? Like, <laughs> If the client doesn't value it, then it shouldn't be done. And if he does value it, he should pay for it. Yeah. Um, by the way, I know we're using examples for practice, but I suppose one thing, I, I, I'm probably a bit mischievous, but I, I do it on an enterprise level or in corporates, is, is the good old reporting and people wanting changes to reports. And I say, well, if an executive wants that to happen, they can pay for it. If they value it, pay for it. And more often than not, they don't. And with the some that do, they will actually put money behind um, enhancing reports so that they get what they want. So it's a really good test of, you know, spending your time where people value as if they're going to pay for it. And that, that's one thing I really, really loved about your book, right? Because it resonated with me was this reframe from this value based pricing or value pricing to pricing value. And I think we need to do more of that. But so, so I, I think I get this. But, but you know, in terms of our audience, Rhonda Lynn, can you sort of maybe take us through that reframe of, of value pricing versus pricing value? Yeah, look, how I came up with it was this, right? So I, you know, I've been around for a couple of decades in the profession and I hear people talking about this value pricing, value pricing, value pricing. You hear about it all the time. But the problem that I had with it, because I was actually asked to speak about this at the QuickBooks Connect conference in Sydney, Australia last year. So I was specifically asked to talk on this topic because that's what the surveys had told them that the profession wanted to hear about. So I started listening and reading and doing all this stuff. And I started noticing that there was this inordinate amount of emphasis on the word pricing. And I couldn't figure out why that was. But I knew that it was detrimental because at the end of the day, if there's two words in a set, in a phrase, value and pricing, and pricing is the action word in that phrase, what's going to instinctively happen? And, and it's, you know, it's something that happens to all of us. We can't, it's very unconscious. It's below the level of, you know, consciousness is that when 
pricing is the action word in the phrase, people are going to naturally gravitate to spend all of their time and energy on pricing. And how it plays out is because people ask a whole bunch of really stupid questions because they're focusing on pricing instead of values. They say things like, how am I going to get my clients to pay more? What happens if my clients don't pay more? You know, how do I double my prices and not lose clients? Everything becomes about you, the price you need to get, the price that you deserve, the price that you want. And there is no time and energy whatsoever spent on the most important phrase or word in the phrase, which is value. So I decided I was going to switch them back to front. So I came up with this concept of pricing value last year, probably in like, I don't know, April or May. And I thought, you know what? I like this concept of pricing value because. When you say pricing value, what we're basically saying in essence is that we're going to put a price on the value that we bring to the table. So we never now talk about repricing the clients, we revalue them. Value has to come first. We've got to put the value up before we can ever hope to put the price up. And a lot of people don't, don't see that. They spend you know, so much time arguing on social media or arguing with their colleagues at conferences about you know whether they need to have three packages or they don't or whether they need to use decor pricing or anchoring or all of these pricing techniques i don't see a hell of a lot of people or time spent on the concept of value and to me that is everything that is the essence of this whole thing and so i want to bring the focus back to where it really should be, which is on value. And I think that, you know, I'm hoping that it catches on and that people start to pull themselves up when they start to notice themselves gravitating towards saying things that you should never say if you are literally committed to pricing value. You know, it's going to, I think it's going to help us to ask better questions and make better decisions and step up as leaders in our profession. Yeah, see that that was a thing that that got to me was the potential of that reframing it to pricing value because then rather than going going from a reactive scenario of of trying to identify value than pricing it up actually the other way around you're actually honing in on doing the things that are of most value to people. Yeah, let's put 90% on value and only 10% on pricing semantics because you know, as you learned when you read the book so much about pricing has nothing to do with the numbers. And that's going to be a real mind screw for accountants because guess what? We are good with numbers. So we think, fantastic, value pricing is a number. I can do it, but they're wrong. It isn't a number. <laughs> Price, pricing like... value is it's a feeling. That's it. Yeah, exactly. So, so like, yeah, so it, that's it. It's more like a feeling or an experience, right? So it's like, um, how, how, do you, how do you say it? I, I may not be doing it justice here now around the limb, but it's like, you know, it's like we're so mad to, to put on the latest tool or um, app or, or, or to apply a model or something to, to discern the value, right? It's not as complicated as that. What is just to go out there and engage with people and ask them what it is that they have and what it is they want and understand the value to them in their terms 
And then in terms of delivering that value, it's giving them an experience that closes the gap between what, what it is that they want and what they think they have. And that, that's, that's, there's no models that you need to, um, to go and facilitate that, but it's more of a mindset shift. Yeah, and it's going to take time. I mean, you know, we're not going to just be able to flick the switch in our brains and magically become masterful at doing it. We have to practice, right? And everybody wants me to give them a checklist. Rondalyn, just give me the five-step checklist to pricing value. It's like, well, if anyone gives you a checklist, don't pay for it because it won't be any good, right? Like I can give you the steps and I can teach you and I can give you feedback and help you. But the real learning and training comes in the practice, the execution, you know, it, it's so not like what we do, right? Because when you become an accountant, so to be a chartered accountant back in the day in Canada, you had to take at least eight accounting courses and have a business degree. You had to write nine hours of qualifying exams. So three hours a day, three days in a row. Then you articled for like, I don't know, 20 months or something. And then you wrote the uniform final exam, which was 16 hours, four hours a day, four days in a row. And that's how you became a chartered accountant. And the fail rate was like, you know, 40 or 50 percent. So it was not easy. But this pricing value thing doesn't have that. There is no course. There is no uniform financial examination. It doesn't work like that. It's not a linear thing. There is no, qual you know, formal linear ascension to pricing value. You just face your fears make a decision that you're going to do it and you start having conversations with people and really understanding what they value and what the cost to them of the solution is before you ever open your mouth and quote the price. You know, if, if I could give one piece of advice to an accountant, it would be stop, you know, stop premature quoting. It's like premature ejaculation. It's not good. <laughs> Right? <laughs> premature quoting is terrible. We, we shouldn't be quoting a price when we don't fundamentally understand the value proposition. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I mean, both both things leave people ultimately dissatisfied. <laughs> you know, when you just hold back a bit, it's a much better experience, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If somebody comes you know up with a Viagra for pricing value, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be wanting some royalties on that. Well, yeah, well, that said, no, I do think I do think the manuscript you shared with me and I read through, I do think there's a lot in there, Rhonda Lynn. So um, I, I'd encourage people to check it out when it when it comes out. Actually, I, I want to be respectful of your time um, and you've given us great advice. Like, I mean, what's been the best bit of advice you've ever received? <sighs> the best bit of advice that I've probably ever received as an accountant is just that people don't really care what you know. They care that you can help them to achieve what they need, right? Like we've got all this knowledge and yeah, it's great. It can help people to do a lot of things, but how do we take that knowledge and really understand what people require of us? You know, what big, hairy, audacious goals do they have? What pain points are keeping them up at night? And how can we take all that knowledge and turn it into something that changes people's lives for the better because you know what businesses they're not real entities they're legal entities businesses don't exist except for the people that run them 
So we're in we're we're not in a transactional business. We're in a relationship business. And we need to get serious as practitioners about actually becoming better at developing relationships. That's 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 very well said. I th- and I think doing that is is going to help us remain relevant and not just that, but actually solve meaningful problems. I mean, business is fundamentally about people, right? So if we want to develop meaning from our work, then we just need to, I suppose, find a way back to the fact that business is about people and relationships and, you know, helping them achieve their goals. Um, what can get more meaningful than that, you know? Yeah. And, and we have to remember how we got to where we are, right? This is the first time there's been a revolution or a disruption in our industry. Any, anybody that was around practicing in the 80s will know. I mean, I wasn't because I was still a student there. But what I know is that this thing that we call the desktop computer threw our profession into a loop. It basically took all the data out of our hands. People used to bring us back in the day everything, and we did it all for them. And all of a sudden, they had their own desktop computer, and they wanted to hold on to their data. And we got stuck as professionals doing compliance work and cleaning up their mess. We, we need to learn from that, right? We were basically told what we were going to do as a profession because of what happened when technology changed. But we don't have to do that anymore. We can be more um, proactive about the role that we're going to play in the future. And we can step up and become the advisors that we were always meant to be. I completely agree. Completely agree. And I suppose in terms of in terms of stepping up, uh, you know, if if our uh, audience wish to take the conversation further, where's the best place to connect with you at? Look, probably the easiest is LinkedIn. Because of my unusual name, Rhonda Lynn Coralac, there's not too, there's only me. <laughs> so there's not going to be anybody else except for me. So just type in my name and yeah, feel free to connect. Um, Probably LinkedIn is easier. I do Twitter and Facebook, but LinkedIn is, you know, probably an easier place to have a business discussion. And if you have questions, yeah, just shoot me a note and I'm happy to answer them and point you in the right direction. Yeah, no, that, that, that'd be brilliant for us. Uh, thanks, thanks, Rondalyn. And, you know, I, I thought you shared some great concepts around, I suppose, pricing value. Which, which was the big, big thing for me. A fantastic, fascinating story as well in terms of your move between Canada and Australia, what you learned along the way, some fantastic examples of when you became a business coach and what you know you understood and helping us find a way back to developing and nurturing relationships. I suppose, any other parting thoughts for our audience? Um, I guess the biggest thing is that, you know, we're in competition right now with a lot of people, right? business coaches, consultants, banks, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are less qualified than you and I are to actually help a small business, but they're better at marketing themselves as being able to do it. And so we need to learn from that because just because somebody's good at marketing doesn't mean that they can actually fix the problems. And so rather than spend, you know, spending all of our time chasing our tails and trying to figure out how do I get a profile and how do I brand myself on LinkedIn and how do I, you know, sell myself to clients? How about this? Spend time learning how to communicate better in plain language with your clients. 
Get leverage on them and influence them to take action. And I guarantee that they will bring you all the clients you could ever ask for. It is the cheapest and most effective way to build a business. And guess what? For all of those business owners out there that I said before, that 96% who think they need more customers, they think they need more customers. And so if you learn how to get more clients and get your existing clients to pay more money without spending money on advertising, you now have a very, very valuable skill that you can sell in an advisory capacity to all those small businesses out there who are going to waste a hell of a lot of money on sales and marketing that isn't going to work for them. Yeah. Well, well, thank thank God this isn't a sales or marketing podcast because I think you would have just terrified a few of our marketeers <laughs> out there. So <laughs> well, yeah, I, just don't, I don't believe in it, right? I don't really believe too much in sales and marketing because I believe in working with your existing customer for, first, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, they're the ones that have placed the faith in you, and I think that's a great place for us all to start. And this goes for not just people in practice working with small businesses it goes with medium-sized enterprise and the large ones whether it's internal relationships across teams it's a it's a case as you said Rhonda Lynn of just going engaging what understanding what can we do better what it is they value okay and then figure out if we can serve them profitably or do so in a way that makes sense for them or us and, and sometimes the best way of driving profits is actually to select the right customers and serve them better which may mean the overall number of customers drops but the profitability increases and those customers will go and refer you to other ones because you're doing an amazing job for them so um, so internal external customers it doesn't matter uh, the, the thing that matters is figuring out what it is our customers want what they value and i guess how can we serve them in the most valuable way possible to them in the language and the ways they want to be served and given that experience. Well, it makes so. sense. One of the most important things that I learned from a very, very smart man named Brian Wolf. He's one of the leading loyalty consultants in the world. So I was working for this coalition loyalty program back in the day, and they wanted to chase the customers that had left them. They, they constantly wanted to chase the customers that had left their grocery store or their business and gone to their competitors. And Brian Wolf came over and did some series of workshops with us. And he empirically proved through very, very credible research that you should spend 76% of your budget on your existing customers. But how many businesses really do that? If the big businesses, and these are multi, this, this business had, you know, a crazy number of employees, I think it was like 100,000 employees or something like that across the various brands, if they're making the mistake in chasing customers that left and trying to get customers for their competitors instead of focusing on their existing employees, small businesses can probably be forgiven for making that mistake because they don't know yet any better, right? But we as advisors need to know that. We as accountants need to be abreast of this kind of stuff. We need to understand that because we can't help people if all that we're doing is encouraging them to waste money on Google ads and LinkedIn marketing to attract new clients all the time. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, I think you picked the right word for it. <laughs> it's just it doesn't make it just doesn't make it's just not common business sense. Um no, and we're probably making yeah, more you work can't for be us. someone's trusted advisor. There was a recent um, survey here in Australia, very credible survey in the Financial Review, 
Only 9.3% of small business owners in this country think their accountant is their most trusted advisor. It's an indictment on our profession. Even though we, we stand better odds of being able to add value to them if we'd only be able to engage with them on terms that they're happy with. Well, and we have to learn how to build a business, right? You can't grow a business by cutting costs, right? If you as an accountant (laughs) don't understand value pricing or pricing value, if you don't know how to maximize loyalty and that you should spend 76% on existing customers, if you don't know how to fix somebody's sales and marketing, you know, um, by making it appeal to the part of the brain that doesn't even read numbers of words. If you can't help them with leadership, how are you going to help them grow their business? You can't you can't grow a business with financial skills alone. And I think I think that's a great great way of finishing up this podcast. On the Lynn, <laughs> we could probably talk parting for two hours on the podcast. Oh, we could actually. I, I I completely think so. I think we'd have to come back and regroup on this one because um, <laughs> I was thinking, should we make this a two part episode? <laughs> <laughs> this for, for our audience this is going to be longer than usual so um so no definitely but i think there's a lot of value literally in here and what a way to end it what a great parting thought so ronda lynn thank you for coming on the show and investing your time with us today yeah pleasure thank you so much also for reviewing you know t- taking a look at the book and giving me some feedback i really appreciate that so there you have it hope you enjoyed today's show If you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter, which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news, and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding, and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working, or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really, it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. When all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers.